On this episode, if you've ever been too afraid to start over, too afraid to pick a new career path, you need to listen. We have Sam Nordine. Sam was enrolled at one of the top dental schools in the country. Sam made a choice that wasn't for him and he started over. 10 years later and multiple businesses later, Sam is now running his own successful law firm specializing in representing plaintiffs in personal injury cases. You'll hear how it took a literal beating from his brother to get him back on course. He has been bold and brave and his story will inspire. Here's my talk with Sam Nordine. Sam Nordine, welcome to Law Profit Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invite. Uh, thanks for being here, man. I'm super excited for our audience to learn your story because uh, I think it's super compelling. You run a very successful plaintiff's personal injury law firm. You have about 300 cases, and I feel like you're one of those lawyers who lets their story run their practice. And so th that's where I want to start with, man. T tell me your backstory. Like, well, how did you end up a lawyer? Uh, you're being too kind by saying I run a very successful law firm. Let me tell you, I'm very happy where I'm at. So uh, success is measurable by a lot of different factors. I'm very happy where I'm at right now in my practice. And I feel like we're, we're growing at a good pace and the future looks great for us, for Nordin Law. But you asked me before we started if I have always knew that I'm gonna be a lawyer. You asked me, how did my love for law uh, appear? How did it happen? And the truth case is, it wasn't even on my radar. I never considered it for once. Uh, my older brother's a dentist. He's 15 years older than me. And he's like my father, my hero, my you know mentor and my savior. And my twin brother is a dentist as well. So it was preset for us that the path was already set. We're go both gonna go to dental school and help him run this a huge dental uh, conglomerate, basically. And that's what we did. We went to college, did really good in college. I took the MCAT, the DAT, scored very well on both of them, and got into dental school. So I went to dental school at Boston University at the age of 20. I did not, you know, I didn't know that about you, Sam. Yes, I did. So I applied, I got into dental school at Boston, in Boston, at Boston University, Goldsmith School of Dentistry. I did a year, a full year of dental school. And that was the path for me. And I don't know what happened. Something just didn't feel right. And I left. I decided during the summer, when I took off for the summer break, I decided I'm not going back. Okay, I want to stop you there for a second because sure. um, I talked to uh, Santa Clara University, a group of undergrads yesterday. Mm -hmm. And when I was prepping for it, I was talking about whether they should go to law school or not. And I sent them a questionnaire beforehand about like what, what are their fears when they graduate, what's going on. And I felt a, a real sense of urgency from them that they needed to figure out what they want to do. They needed to, you know, they're worried about committing to law school. They're worried about, you know, choosing a path. And what you're already telling me, which is something that I believe, but I think it's hard for people to grab onto, is that you can you can change your path, right? Like, Absolutely. tell me about what what a little bit more about what made that decision for you. Like, how, how did you come to that place of like, 
I got this path, it's preconceived, but I'm doing something different. It was, it was, it was set in stone. I mean, it was just guaranteed because we, my, my twin brother and I did really well in school. Our grades were straight A's. So it was like no brainer. You, oh, you're, you want to go to dental school? You can get it. You can achieve that goal. Your grades are good. Your DAT score is good. It's very doable, very feasible, achievable goal. And my twin brother went through with it. Something happened with me while I was in Boston, living alone for the first time away from my family. I got homesick. Um, I just felt this is not for me. And I'll be honest with you, I struggled with that for a long time because as a lot of the young uh, students, college students that you spoke to, I felt like you have to get on a path. You have to choose a, choose a career, choose a path and stick to it because there is some urgency. In our current society, there is urgency. Um, people want to consider themselves as, as um, you know, achievers, as, as accomplishing goals. They don't want to be considered as just slackers, wasting their time day in, day out. So there is an urgency among certain group of young adults to get it done and get it done quickly. Mm -hmm. But we've learned that you really don't figure out what you want to do in life that early, that young. It takes a lifetime. Some of the most successful people didn't find uh, their real profession until after they're 35. You know, so um, it's difficult. Listen, life will, will throw at you a lot of curveballs. There is no one road that fits everybody. You know what I mean? Well, uh, so let's not get carried away. Let's go back to uh, my story. Well, yeah, well, that's what I, I want to hear, though, that so you left. What, what was the next thing between you? What was going on between leaving dental school and then making the decision to go to law school? Like at what, what period of time was that and what was going on? That was um, 10 years almost, nine or 10 years, where I bounced between jobs, decided to go back to dental school, uh, did the DAT again, applied again, got into dental school again, and then changed my mind. Yes. Wow. Within wow. So it was a struggle. L listen, I had, I had a very, uh, what's the bumpy 20s where I got, you know, distracted uh, with, with other uh, priorities of life. Yeah. Well, tell, so what role did your family play in that in, in, during this time period? Like, was it a good pressure, bad pressure? Because that's something else I've had to work with. I know a lot of people have to work with is um, families can apply good pressure and not so helpful pressure. You know what I mean? So can you, can you tell us about how your, what role your family, especially when you got two brothers Oh, who God. followed the route. I have four brothers. The okay. two of them played the larger role in my life. So now I'm going to get personal. I'm going to tell you a story that's really, really personal. And I don't mind sharing online, sharing with your audience. I haven't shared it uh, on, a, on a social platform. So this is the first time. I went after dental school. I went down the wrong path. I was hanging out with the wrong people, doing the wrong things. And, you know... My older brother, who's a father figure, figured it out and saw what's going on and figured that there's a lot of lost potential in me. 
I'm going to throw my life away. So I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. That's where I went to high school and college. So he tracked me down one evening in February 2005. And I kid you not, excuse my, excuse my language, he beat the living peep out of me. Actually, blooded me. Broken nose, black eye. And he said, this is my town. I've been here for 20 years. I have a clean reputation and you're ruining it. I want you out of the state within 24 hours. And if you don't leave Oregon within 24 hours, we're going to have this dance every single night of the week. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So that so what was what happened. So I packed my stuff. I rented the U-Haul and I moved to California the next morning. What did you start doing? What was the next step in your relationship with your oh, brother? Like what? What? It was... It was shaky for, for a few years, but I started doing uh, real estate. I opened my own mortgage company and I was doing loans. And in 2006, seven, the mortgage industry started crashing. You remember? So there was I a do. huge real estate crash during that period. And I was sitting with one of my buddies who's doing the same thing. His name is Randy. And he says to me, I'm sick and tired of this. Let's do something else with our lives. And I said, sure, Randy, that's a great idea. What do you, what do you think we should do? Because let's go back to school. And I'm like, you know what? I've been wanting to go back to school. I think you're, on, you're onto something. He goes, let's, let's do it together. We'll support each other. We'll go down through this together. And, you know, we'll get it done. We're both smart guys. I'm like, you know what? I, I love that idea. Let's do it. He said, and I asked him, well, what are you, what are you thinking? Because I've tried this whole dental school thing a couple of times, you know, wasn't working out. What are you thinking? He goes, how about law school? I kid you not, Case. And I had never considered law school ever. That's crazy. And I just sat back there and I said, hmm, law school, why not? <laughs> Let's do law school. Stop. So I, I kid you not. And, I, you know, my good friend, Randy Bahbah. And we applied and got into the Kaplan course at UCI, the preparation course for the LSAT. And we took it together. And we took the LSAT together. I scored very high. Well, I, I think it was very high, 92%. He didn't. I, we applied to two schools. I got into both of them. He didn't. I got a scholarship full ride at Chapman. So I chose Chapman over the other school because of the full scholarship. And I went through with it. And you asked me a question earlier, what were the family pressures? Now, my brother was so tough on me because he knew there was potential. He knew that I was throwing my life away. And he was worried about me. So he put a lot of tough love into our relationship. And when he found out that I got into law school, he calls me for the first time. I haven't spoken to him in two or three years. And he says, you get $2,000 a month from me for living expenses as long as you continue law school. 
Yeah. Wow. And that's what happened. And he would send me every single month. He goes, because I know you got a scholarship. You still need living expenses. That's on me. That's $2, wild. $2,000 a month. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. I want to take a say that situation with him when, when, when he went to town on you a couple years yeah. before in hindsight, do you think that was the right play by him? Is that like what was really needed? Or are you like, man, there's a lot of different ways that could have been done. Like, what do you think looking back on it? So looking back on it, I am so grateful that he did because there's a lot of the story that I don't think I need to, to disclose on, on a social platform. Uh, there are a lot to it, but he saved me. He basically um, changed the course of my life. He did with that one decision, that one evening that he did change the course of my life. My roommate, my roommate, who was my roommate back in Oregon, spent seven years in federal prison. And I had left that whole situation. So he truly saved me. And I tell him that every single day. Are you really close with that brother now? Absolutely. I'm close with all my family members, with all my siblings, but especially him. I just spoke to him for 30 minutes this morning. Really? Yeah. Man, so, so t tell me about your choice. Did you, at what point in law school, did you decide you knew what you wanted to do? Or was that after law school with, with your practice? Um, uh, no, with my practice, I didn't know in law school. I thought I would do criminal law, criminal defense, or I'll do immigration, something to help, you know, the community, to help public, the public service. I really didn't know I would do personage. Uh, I didn't even enjoy it in law school. Torts wasn't something that I enjoyed. I barely passed that class. I'm going to be honest with you. Here's another uh, piece of information. I excelled in every every academic um, challenge that I had. But when I came to law school, I just cruised. Basically, you know, I just wanted to pass my my grades. I wasn't even trying to excel. And I figured... I really couldn't excel because now you have you were competing against some of the top students, and I come uh, with with you know you can tell there's an accent and a second language, so English is not my first language. It was it was a somewhat of a challenge, but I overcome I overcame it, and um, but no, I didn't know in law school that I'm going to do personal injury. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, what um, time? When did you decide that that that's what you were going to do? Um. So one of the reasons I chose Chapman as a law school was because I knew I'm going to work for myself immediately after law school. I was older than the average um, law student. I was in my 30s, and I had business experience. I had owned my own business a couple of times, a couple of businesses. And I knew that, listen, if you run your practice as a business, you'll be fine. I didn't have a lot of time to go and do the, the, the tra traditional uh, road, which you graduate from law school, you work for a firm, you work for somebody, you learn under their mentorship, you learn under, you know what I mean, under their buck, basically. And at some point, maybe you branch on your own or you don't. You, go, you, know, you move up 
the ladder in that firm. I knew that traditional uh, track wasn't for me. I wanted to do it on my own immediately. So that was on my mind, even when I was in law school. During law school, I built a good relationship with my law school professor, Adam Krohn. He's the founder of Krohn and Moss. He taught us consumer law at Chapman. So I walked up to him one morning before, while he was coming to school. I kind of, you know, uh, got Positioned yourself so you could yeah. bump into him for this conversation. Exactly. Yeah. I waited for him. I waited for him outside. And I kind of, you know, uh, I come up to him and I'm like, so Adam, you talk to us all year long about how amazing consumer law is. Well, now I want to experience it firsthand. I want to actually come and work for you for the summer. He's like, oh, is that so? Well, I need a job. I love, you know what I mean? I loved your class. We had a good relationship throughout the year. And I'd, I'd love to come and work for you. He goes, okay. It was Thursday. He goes, Monday at 3 p.m., come to my office. I said, well, there's, another, there's one more thing. He goes, what is it, Sam? Like, well, you see my buddy Ashkan, he needs a job too. So he's coming with me. <laughs> he's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, well, the, the firm is in Los Angeles. We both live in Orange County. I need the I need the carpool buddy. And he needs a job. You have a huge firm. I'm sure you guys need some interns. He goes, okay, you and Ashkan come and see me on Monday at three o'clock. And so I got a job for my friend and I at Cronin Moss, an internship for the summer. And um, even though it was supposed to be a summer internship, it kind of extended and I stayed for the whole year. Uh, that was towards my, that was the third year of law school. So I stayed the entire year, then worked through the summer. And when I graduated and I told Adam I'm leaving, he says, here's 38 cases in litigation. Take them with you. Personal injury cases. So he had started a personal injury department a couple of years prior, and he was dissolving it. He decided, I don't want to do personal injury. We're going to stick to consumer law. And I left, and he said, here's 38 cases of litigation. Go litigate the heck out of them. On my buck, I'll cover all the costs, and I want you to go to 38 trials. I'm like, Okay, how could you say no to that? Right. I mean, what attorney in the right mind would say no to that? I took the opportunity, jumped on those cases and started working them. And of course, I would call him every second. I, Every time I had a question, I would call Mike Kazrun. He was a good friend. You know him. He was such an amazing life help. He was basically a lifeline. Anytime I had a question, anytime I had a concern, I'd call Mike. So... Um, and that's how it started. That's how I started doing personal injury. See, that's crazy because I think that not enough people realize that it, it, it is rarely that top person in the class, right? It, it's rarely that skill that helps you advance in law school that makes you a good lawyer. It's mm -hmm. stuff like, and I always talk to people about this, it's putting yourself out there, right? It's being brave enough to go up to that guy and, and position yourself to, to do that, right? To be bold enough to do that. And, and that's where the world opens up. You know what I mean? I agree. So I think I think that's incredible. And then also, you know, you talked about owning a business and looking at 
what you can do after law school is running a business. What we found is that, you know, I think that a lot of lawyers hear running your firm like a business and it's got like a bad connotation to it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But what, what I've seen is that the more you run it like a business, the better service you provide to the client and the better the result for your client when you run it like a business, as opposed to the, I think the way a lot of lawyers perceive that they have to have their law firm run. Do you see that too? Uh, that's an excellent point. Okay, so let me give you my spin or my two cents on it. Uh, you, When you start running your own firm, you're a one-man team. It's not like you're going to start a firm and have enough resources to hire a strong team to support you. You're a one-man team. You have to do everything on your own. So you have to be the attorney, of course. You have to be the intake person. You have to be the marketing person, the business person, the accounting person. You have to, to wear all type of hats. That doesn't stop. That never goes away. So now I've been in practice for nine years. I've been running my own firm since 2013. So I don't know, um, seven years, eight years almost. It never stops. When it comes to the business decisions, it falls on my desk. I'm sure that's how it is in a lot of firms. Some firms, they do have business managers or partners that are no longer practicing law. They're just the managing partners. Smaller firms don't have that, that, that you know, privilege. They don't have that luxury. Uh, so I have to run it as a business. But that said, we still have a lot of legal duties and obligations to our client. And we'll talk about that a little bit on, on a little bit. Um, I treat all my clients as if I'm working on my family member's case. So there's a business element because you, we still have costs, we have expenses. But at the same time, if you want to grow in anything you do, you got to treat people the same way you would treat a family member and they'll appreciate it. They'll come back. And I see it over and over again. Clients referring me cases. Clients bringing to me their family members. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's how you grow a firm. So I agree with you. We have to run it as a business, but there's, there's a balance. Well, and, and don't you think though that, that that is running it like a business, right? Because you're thinking it, it all it all fits together, right? Yes. It all fits together that you, you know you you've had business success before law school, I did, and you've learned what it, what what the same things that make other businesses successful will make the law firm successful. And I think lawyers too much think that like we run some special magic, you know, firms are just different. But, but I don't think they are, right? You provide good personal service, you take care of people, and things grow from there. You know, and it sounds like you learned that in this time period before law school, right? Uh, yes and no. So I, I knew how, I mean, I had some good communication skills. I consider myself to be a people's person, meaning um, if I go into anywhere, any social gathering, you don't see me standing in the corner. I'm the guy that will walk around and talk to everybody just because that's my type of personality. So, you know, you want to call it uh, an extrovert, whatever you want to call it. It's just I consider myself the person that will make the effort to go say hi to everybody. And that's just 
my personality type. So having people skills is one of the things that will help an attorney bring in clients. So grow the firm. There are different different aspects of running a firm. I'm sure you know that. You have your own firm. Uh, some attorneys excel in the law itself and don't want to worry about anything else. Some attorneys listen. They say, and you know, we, we have some big examples. For example, I'll give you CZR, Nick Crowley. Doesn't want to handle any of the other stuff except doing law and doing trials. And he's got his partners doing the other aspects of it. Once again, if you have partners, you figure out what each of these partners' strengths are and you capitalize on it. But when you're alone, such as your case or mine, I know you have your wife that helps you, does a wonderful job. Um, I'm doing the whole thing on my own. So I have to depend on myself to do these extra things. Um, so Yeah, because I'm super lucky because when I got started with my firm, I didn't do enough planning. Um, and we have grown incredibly since then by, by starting to run it like a business. But it was my wife who has, she has that real skill set, right? I mean, her, it is unbelievable that we've been able to thrive the way we have. Um, and it's because of her business mindset and her, it's just different. She brings to the table something that I think more attorneys should, which is a, a, um, a business mindset. You know, it's a business mindset with a personal service um, emphasis, you know? And I think I feel like too many lawyers are the way that I used to be, which is if I can just do the law great, everything else will fall into place. And it, it's not like that. Like it, it just isn't like that. You either have to wear all the hats or you got to find other people who are going to have those incredible strengths. And I'm lucky because my, you know, out of, if you need, if there's 10 things you need, my wife's got nine of them, you know what I mean? She probably has 10 of them actually, but, but luckily she, she lets me take one of them. Um, You're absolutely lucky. Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's clear from the way your firms run. So, Hey, here's what we're talking about. You find out the strength of each member in the team and you capitalize on those strengths and you and your wife figured that out. Um, I'm still looking for that part. And I even thought about it prior, uh, before this interview, I was thinking because I'm at a crossroad in my firm. I mean, at this point we're growing, uh, we're starting to get a lot more cases, um, marketing and social media. So new cases are coming in on a steady flow right now. And I have to make a decision. Where do I want to be? Where am I going to place myself? Am I going to place myself as the managing attorney and run the business side of the firm? Or do I want to be a trial attorney and be the, per, the, the, the attorney that's handling the litigation aspect of the litigation cases? We have 72 cases in litigation. So I'm at that crossroad. And right now I'm struggling with with figuring out a solution. So you're right. It's difficult to do everything on your own. And that's, yeah, that's a huge struggle too. It's so funny you brought that up because we feel that too, where you you get in that space of, are you going to actually get a little bit smaller 
and focus or grow and and invest in more people and it's hard to strike the balance because you bring you hire an attorney to come in to work the cases up well you lose that control and then you're spending money on the attorney is that going to pay off over the long run um i think that those are really hard questions and we always talk about it too where are you working in the firm or on the firm right mm -hmm. and Absolutely. so the place where we have found the, the most growth and the actually the best service for our clients is when we are working on the firm um, because because it allows it all the cases to be run more uniformly you know and so but it, it how are you facing those those growth issues right now and that decision process how are you working your way through that so uh, it's i'm it's still a work in progress and we're, i'm constantly making changes to see what fits because we, we, we know other firms, right? And we know a lot of the attorneys that run the other firms. And we see the firms that are strictly pre-litigation firms. And you see the firms that are strictly litigation firms. And then you have the in-between. Um, and I've been on, are you on Clubhouse as well? I've seen you on Clubhouse. Yeah, uh, not a lot, but I, I, I yes. I've been on Clubhouse a couple of times and there was a discussion uh, a week or so ago about this specific thing. And it was, well, how do you make the, how do you figure out what's the balance? How do you figure out what's going, especially with the current uh, situation in our legal industry, which is major delays in the court, uh, no, no trials coming up. And because of that, insurance companies are delaying settlements and they're offering low settlements low offers because they know there's no urgency. There's no trial deadline. There's nothing pushing their, you know, their behinds to the wall saying, either make a good good faith offer or I'll see you in court. They don't have that, you know, uh, challenge to, that we normally do with them. We normally say, listen, you don't want to pay a good fair offer? That's fine. I'll see you in court. We have a trial date coming up and you know, so let twelve license drive. Let's rack twelve and see what they say about it. Exactly. Yeah. Now we don't have that option. So insurance companies are forcing us right now to file more cases. I'm sure you see it in your practice. We uh, do. My, my, my litigation caseload doubled in the last year. Normally, I like to leave it somewhere between thirty and forty cases for two attorneys. That's very manageable with the pre-litigation department. Now it's at seventy-two. That's double where I like to leave it at. So now I'm at a crossroad where I have to make a decision to hire a new attorney and file another 30 cases or scale back. And I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, the, the, the interesting part as well, Case, and I'm sure you see that, sometimes these decisions are a little bit out of our hands. Meaning what? What do I mean? When you get good cases coming through the door, it's really difficult to turn them down, especially where we're, where I'm at in my profession in my professional life. It's very difficult to get a good case with a real injury, uh, you know, clear damages, clear liability. You're not going to turn it down. I mean, how could you? This is what we do. It's a business, but we're also helping people. And somebody that comes through a referral, somebody you know, or a lead comes with a good all the elements that you look for, 
How could you turn that down? And now before you know it, my case has jumped from 200 to 300. My litigation cases jumped from around 35, 40 now to 72, just like that. And I'm worried that in another six months, if things continue the way they are, I'm gonna have no choice but to scale up and see what it takes. It's no longer gonna be an option. Right, and, and you know, sometimes that's the beauty of it, right? It, mm -hmm. The answer just, you keep looking, you keep grinding, you keep working on it. And you know, I feel like sometimes with the right thought process and the right work ethic and the, and, and the, and the plan, it almost like you, you manifest it, right? Like, you know, that if you got five more good cases, you, you ramp up, right? You, you yeah. know, that if, Absolutely. right. Absolutely. And, and so sometimes, and at least that's what we've seen is you get in those modes and it's stressful when you're in it, but you always get to the other side of it. And it tends to be when you believe in the abundance, it, it, it works itself out. You know, I that's agree. what, that's what we've seen. I agree. I agree. Another another uh, point that I'd like to add, um, and you touched on that, adding new team members. So having the right team around you is essential. I think that's what makes or breaks any type of business, and a law firm is no different. I for the until I want to say two and a half years ago. My firm was just like in a, in, a, in a place of limbo where I wasn't sure what I'm doing. I'm barely, you know what I mean, uh, moving up. My caseload is, is nothing that, you know, I can brag about. And the case results are nothing to even mention or, or publish. But in the last two and a half years, things have changed. And, you know, it's so success, my professional success is still new. I'm going to be honest with you. All right, that's how I feel. And in large part, that's due to the team members that I finally found. When you find good, strong team members that help you and take a, some of the things off your plate so you can focus on other stuff to, to capitalize on your strength, it helps the whole team move forward in the right, at the right pace in the right direction. So that's a big point as well. So you mentioned, you mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned the hiring a new attorney. So it's not just the struggle of making sure they're paying for, you know, it's a good business investment. You also want to make sure they're a good fit. You want to make sure they understand the culture of your firm and they treat your clients the way you treat them. I think that is more important for me personally than whether they're going to produce in the beginning. Because I believe that if you bring the right team member that's willing to work well with the rest of the team members and treat your clients the way you would treat them, follow the, the firm culture, you can train them and make them better attorneys. You can train them and make them better paralegals, better legal assistants, better case managers. That we're able to do. And you know, I, I pride myself as having that skill but it's just, are they a good fit and are they willing to take that extra step? That you don't find out until you've actually tested them. Yeah, well, and that's, so two, two questions there, because I, I think this is something that a lot, of, a lot of firms wrestle with is, how do you find the right team members? And then how do you coach the team members up? So there's no um, set formula. 
I, mean, I can tell you what worked for me. That's all I can tell you. Uh, I were constantly looking for new team members. And now one of my strongest team members got into UC Davis Law School and she's leaving. So I need to find a replacement for her. And as difficult as that is, you know, we still have to do it. Um, it's going to be very difficult uh, to fill her, her position. Some large shoes that we're going to have to replace. Uh, but this is, the way, this is the way businesses are. And she wants to move on in life, and I will support her in her decision. So we are constantly sending ads on Indeed, on everywhere. My team can, can put some ads. And they bring me interviews. We review the interviews together, um, my office manager and myself, and we set up interviews. And I'll spend 30 to 45 minutes. Now we're doing a Zoom, on Zoom interviews. If I like them, if I get a good vibe, if I get some nice connection, if I see that the person is motivated, easy, coachable, then I do an in-person interview. And then after that, I've, we've, we've implemented a full day interview, a working interview. Well, they'll come for a full day. We'll pay them for the full day, sometimes for three days. It's a working interview. Let's see how you perform at a full day. It's an interview, and you're going to get paid this much for that day. And at the end of the, you know, that working interview, we'll make a decision if we're going to give you a, a position or not. Despite all those, despite all these things that you do, you really can't tell. At the end of the day, it's 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 like a it's like a marriage or a relationship, some sort. Marriages are sacred. It's like a relationship, in some sort. Um, you you might like someone in the beginning, and then you start seeing all these other things in them that are not fitting into what you are looking for, and you're constantly assessing. So. Um, the first thing I look for in a new team member is, are they a good fit? Are they warm and approachable? And are they coachable? Those are the things. Those are the, the on my top priority list. Yeah, th those three are so important because the coachable and, and, the, and the warmth, right? Because I think that with personal injury in particular, the clients need to feel the love and the warmth and the comfort because it's scary. You know, I think the lawyers lose touch with that. And I think that um, for a lot of law firms, they, 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 they see the clients as numbers, right? They see the clients as injuries, right? They don't see it as a human who brings everything in their past to the table. And it's scary. It is scary getting hurt and dealing with the injury, not knowing if you're going to get better. It's scary dealing with the insurance company. You know, there's a lot of fears that uh, attorneys can get turned off from and, and disconnected from, right? I think that's yeah. a attorney different. Uh, attorneys have the bad reputation for that of getting disconnected from the humanity of it. Absolutely. And it's important that that it it appears to me, and, and we do the same thing, where it comes from the top down, though, right? You set the example for how the team members are going to treat people, right? I mean, you. I see that you, with you. You and your have friends. to. You have to now. Every now and then you'll get really lucky with a team member that takes it upon themselves to improve things, take it upon themselves to, to take what you're teaching and to, to expand on it, to improve it. 
And when you find a team member like that, you hold on to them and you you pray that they don't, they don't leave. Um, but you are absolutely correct. It comes down from how you treat your clients. Now, if I'm going to ignore calls and ignore emails, whether I like it or not, my team members are going to do the same thing. All right? It just it passes down. Same goes to kids, your kids. If they see you drinking soda at home, guess what? They're going to drink soda at home. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them it's bad for you. It's, it's as simple as that. So you lead by example. That's just, it's not just, a, you know, a nice uh, line on a, on a photo. You lead by example. It's true. Your team is going to follow your lead. If you're going to do things a certain way with clients, even difficult clients, and I make it a point when one of my team members is having a, a problem with a client, I bring him into my office and I'll call the client right in front of them on speakerphone and show them how I deal with them and give them love. Give the client love despite everything. Give yeah. them love. It's incredible how the clients will respond to that, right? Like I think that that's what happens a lot of times is a client will be upset and the, the team member or the attorney will, will almost meet that uh, tension or that anger with the same force. And it's way more powerful that, you know, they're feeling that way for a reason and it's their emotion, right? And you have to accept that as their truly held honest emotion and they're feeling it for a reason. And yeah. you got to address that reason, you know? Absolutely. You got to get to it and then figure out why they feel that way and acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Put it in a yes. place where, okay, he sees me, he hears me, and he's going to do something about it. It's not just some fake, oh, okay, okay, you know what I mean? Uh, I'll give you an example. I had a young client who was injured during COVID in a motor vehicle collision um, and wanted things to move really fast. We've all seen those clients. He wanted money yesterday. And I'm like, you know, things take a little bit of time. I need you to treat. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. And I've spoken to him numerous times. Um, and at some point, I receive a bad review online from him saying they're not moving fast enough, blah, blah, blah. Picked up the phone, called him, said, hey, what's going on? I mean, it's shocking to see this bad review from you. You have my cell phone number. I call you constantly. I talk to you. You talk to my team. I know there are delays and I know you're frustrated about it, COVID and everything that's going on. You know, I'm, we're really doing our best. And if there's anything else we can do, please let me know. Within 10 minutes, he changed the review. I didn't ask him to. And he posts, you know what? The, the attorney called me back and he was so cool about it. And instead of being upset about the bad review, he actually understood so, no, they're cool. And I'm, and I'm telling you that I think that's a different way than most people would approach it. But we found the same thing with our firm is it, is it that those, those tensions, those stresses come from a place of the client and they want to be heard. They want to be acknowledged just like anybody else in, in anything else in life, right? I mean, we feel the same frustrations when we're going to doctor's offices or with our accountant, right? Whatever. It, it's, it's, all, it's all the same thing and people just want to be heard. And I think, I think it's something that, that – lawyers struggle with is that just because your lawyer doesn't mean you get to treat people uh <laughs> differently you know 
Um, yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. Um, you have to be listen. That's another thing I learned, and we'll talk about that. I'm not sure how much time we have. It looks like we're going to be here for a long time. Uh, I, I, as I mentioned to you before, you already know, I went to Trial Lawyers College in Wyoming, and I spent three weeks there on the ranch. One of the, the main things they implement or they teach you there is you have to be real in every relationship even specifically in front of a jury. You have to be transparent, vulnerable, and real. And when you do that, they will connect with you. When you do that with anybody, I don't care what the feelings are or the animosity or, or the, the disconnect. When you're real, and it's true real, not fabricated, not just acting, true vulnerability coming from a place of, hey, this is me. I'm owning it. This is what's going on. You do it that way, nine out of 10 times, the other side is going to connect with you. I even use that technique with adjusters and defense counsel. And, Absolute, and, absolutely. And it works most of the time. And I got to tell you, believe me, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it, they think I'm just faking it. They think I'm just being... Oh, here comes another attorney trying to, you know, trying to, you know, sweet talk me or whatever. Sometimes it works with a justice and defense counsel. A lot of times it doesn't, but with juries, with people, when you connect with them on an on a real level, emotional level, they're gonna respond the same way. Yeah. I and I I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that that's a super powerful message that um there's these images that people feel they have to match up with for attorney. And it's typically like aggressive, unkind, unsympathetic, and, you know, always at loggerheads with each other. And I think that's why that other approach is, is really the more powerful approach because it's honest, it's true. And I, I've seen the same thing you have, but that's to me where you really make a difference in all areas of your practice, particularly with real people like jurors, you know, <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, I want to ask you too, um, cause I, I think this is super important for a lot of people, but can you tell me what one, uh, limiting belief that you've had in your life or your law practice that you've had to overcome to achieve success and one empowering belief that you've had that has also elevated your practice? Hmm. Excellent questions. Take a lot of deep uh, thought into it. But let's see. So, can I talk about the success first? Yeah, absolutely. Talk about the limitation. Um, the success took a turn after I attended the TLC uh, program. During that period and during, you know, the excellent faculty there and the interactions that I made with some of the best attorneys in the country. I learned that it's really not about you. Never is. We as attorneys, we think, oh, you know, I got to sound, I got to be the smartest person in the room. I got to sound so intelligent and I got to, you know, just awe everybody. I got to awe the judge and make him think, wow, what a great attorney. It's never about you. 
It's really about the client. That's what we're doing. We're there advocating on behalf of another individual that's going through a lot of things. So for you to do your job well, you have to know that individual. You have to know that person, know everything about them to be able to tell their story. And if you really know everything about them, you spend enough time with them, you can actually, because we have the skills, because we have the training, we can tell their story better than they could. But it has to get to that point. So my entire outlook on law, and I actually fell in love with law after that experience. That's when I finally realized, okay, now there's a purpose. Now there's a meaning in what I do. It all came over it. Until that point, I was all over the place, just trying to figure it out, trying to, you know, get the quick, easy way of, of getting a case and making a quick turnaround settlement. I'm going to be honest with you. But it took some incredible human beings. It took some incredible people to share their struggles and their experiences to let to allow me to kind of dig deep into myself and figure out, well, you know what? I can do that. I can really take me with everything. I can take my strength. I can figure out what in me will drive me to be a better attorney. And that was it. That was the turning point in my practice. That's incredible because I think, like I see, I see a limiting belief and an empowering belief right there, right? The, the limiting belief, which I think a lot of lawyers struggle with, is they have to be a certain way, right? And, and there's an incredible pressure that comes with that that crushes your ability to actually do a good job, right? And when you're able to release that those expectations, that that framework, then you really have a chance to grow and do something unique to you let your story and your struggle drive your representation representation of that client your practice the whole thing that's when you do the great work and when you become impassioned because you're doing you not somebody else that's absolutely. incredible absolutely we 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 learn from these excellent attorneys that have been doing it for a long time and they share their experience and they share their time and their expertise and knowledge with us and that's incredible that's one thing in the plaintiff, in the personal injury world, that we're just so blessed to have. But it doesn't matter how hard I try, I cannot be a Rosh. I cannot be Nick. I cannot be Brian. I cannot be Mike Alder. I cannot be those guys. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm a different person with a different background, with a different style. I got to take what I learned from them and try to implement it on what works for me, what best fits my style. Because as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, ultimately the, the well, it's not, even, it's not even a goal. Ultimately what you wanna do is just be transparent and real in every interaction, jury, clients, employees. You know, once you take that approach, it's easy to get it to work. It's easy to make it gel together. It's easier to get to where you want to go. Easier. It's not, it's not always easy, but it's easier. No, right. It's, it, well, it's liberating, right? It it's is. liberating, not caring. It's that whole thing when you're able to, to ditch the anxiety and the stress. And, you know, a lot of people think they worry about things in the future, 
right? They, they worry, 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 worry. And that gets in the way of doing the real beautiful work. Um, I, I, and just being present in what you have before you. And, uh, I think it's incredible that you're able to hit that point in your practice and in your life. And, uh, that's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that, Sam. Well, thank you. I mean, it's been, and it's still an ongoing, um, growth. So I'm still learning how to be more transparent. I'm still learning how to be more comfortable in my skin. I struggle. I have my insecurities like everybody else. I have my weaknesses like everybody else. And I still, even though I've been in this country for since 94, I still feel like I have a hint of an accent that's very noticeable sometimes. And it bothers me. It plays on my insecurities. You know, so I still want to be more at peace with that, more comfortable in my own skin. That's one of the weaknesses that I feel I have, even though a lot of people say, it's un, you know, it's nothing to worry about. Um, you know, you had um, a speaker on your podcast recently, uh, Judge Rogan. He was my law school professor. He taught me trial skills, trial practices at Chapman. And he was the reason I fell in love with litigation. He actually told me during my final that you have a certain way about the way you speak that's, uh, that's powerful. Work on it and improve it. Uh, you know, I heard the whole uh, podcast. He's amazing. I just love Judge Rogan. Uh, he's, he's an amazing human. His story is so awesome. Uh, and and he, he lives his true story. I think it's something really yeah. powerful that I've seen in a lot of people that we're talking to. Uh, in you, in Judge Rogan, it, there's there's principles that that you live by, that Rogan lives by. And um, it's incredible to see, though, that, that there's a journey that leads to developing those principles and those skills and that whole thing. And I think that's missed out. A lot of people miss out on that. They, they, they don't see it. They just see the person in the spot now. And they think either how lucky or they think they could never be in that spot. And it's cool. I appreciate you sharing what you shared today. Because Sam, it's incredible. Your story is incredible. Um, I, I love it. And I hope a lot of people hear it and are inspired by it because it's an inspiring story. I, I really appreciate you sharing today, bud. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I know we could talk for hours. There's a lot more to share. And maybe we'll do it over a beer or something. I want to have, well, you know, what's funny is I, what you brought up at the end, I'd love to have you back on to talk about, which is your, your, the part of your story about being an immigrant yeah, and, and how that has inspired your practice and how you treat people. I think that's another part of it. We're going to have to save for, for the next time we have you on, but I, I'd love that, Sam. So Absolutely. The, I, the story you shared today is incredible. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And uh, you're doing great things. I'm looking forward to talking to you and seeing you very soon. All right, Sam. Thanks a lot, man. God bless. Okay. Thank you. God bless. Take care.